0: The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. I don't even know how to walk up here without pray, after praising God in that way and be able to be calm for a moment. So let's pray. God, as we come before you this morning, help us to come with a mindset of gratefulness for having been delivered from our Egypt by your hand. As we spend time in the word today, we just want to hear what you what you have for us from it. It's in your son's name I pray, amen. Well, this dude is going to get us all killed. They had been on the battlefield for weeks, and what started out as what was going to be a pretty big war kind of degenerated into these little skirmishes, and and finally it was the same thing day after day. The enemy had sent this man out into the middle of the field. And for weeks, he said, send out your best soldier. Let's fight. Whoever wins, the other army, the other people become a slave of the one who has won. And for weeks, it was just the same thing over and over. This this man coming out into the field, calling curses upon the people, and nothing happening. Until one day, something did happen. This boy, boy, walked out into the field to face this man named Goliath. And surely, there were people who thought, this dude is going to get us killed. I don't know what the king is thinking by sending this guy out to represent us. This doesn't make any sense. He doesn't even have any armor. He he doesn't even have a sword. This guy's just going to get us killed. And as this boy named David walks out to Goliath, Goliath says this, Am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? I will feed you to the birds and wild animals. Mulholland paraphrase of that is, what are you doing sending this person out against me? I'm going to destroy you. This is the most foolish thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And interestingly, David says, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head, and then I will give the dead bodies of your men, to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. And the way this scene plays out in 1 Samuel, Goliath begins to run at David. And I can only imagine this had to be one of those scenes that they talked about for years and years and years. And the story probably began with, you had to be there to believe it. Because I think what happened next, like, had to happen so fast and so quick that no one had a response. And in fact, the scripture kind of talks about that. David pulls out a sling and puts a rock in it, swings it, and hits Goliath right in the center of his head, and Goliath falls over. Like, in a matter of seconds, this whole thing was over. And I imagine there was a hush of just disbelief on everyone, like, what in the world did we just see? And here's the thing. If the Israelites had, had known their history. What they would know is what happened on the field that day was really nothing new. This is something that God always has done. God has always used foolish things to defeat things that seem wise. God has always used things that seem weak to defeat things that seem strong. As we talked about this last week, I, I thought about Jacob being chosen over Esau. Jacob was the second born. Esau was the first born. And, and as we read through some of these stories in the Bible, we're like, well, Jacob was, his, his name means deceiver. Why did God use him? Well, because God always uses unexpected people. We think of the story of Moses. Moses claims he can't speak very well. So then there's probably, I think, some truth to that. So God sends Aaron along with him. And if we were to take time and and just read through the Old Testament, we would see that God frequently uh, uses things that are weak, that seem weak, that seem unimportant, that seem poor, to shame those who Claim to be wise, who claim to be rich, who claim to have power. And this is really good news. You should know that. Because when we operate out of our own strength, it's not us, or it's not God that's glorified, but it's us. When we operate under our own power, under our own wealth, we receive the glory and not God. This morning we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 to 31. If you have one of those Bibles, if you're going to use one of the Bibles with the seat back in front of you, it's on page 7:11. I promise you at some point we're going to be off of page 711. I think it's actually today. what's happening in this particular text is the people in Corinth are so focused on themselves and their own preferences that what they're doing is they're glorifying themselves. And Paul is going to destroy their mindset of of this self-glorification that they have because, because they're so focused on themselves, they're blinded to reality. They're blinded to what's actually taking place. They're blinded to the mission and purpose of God's people. So what he's going to do is he's going to attack their own wisdom. He's going to reveal it for something. And this is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 25. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those who are but to those called by God to salvation both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. So here's what Paul wants the church at Corinth to know as their as they're giving in to their own preferences and, and the decisions and the choices that they're making around who their favorite speaker is and the division this is causing and the sexual sin that's kind of running rampant within the church and all of the cultural issues that they're dealing with, Paul wants them to know that above all else, the cross is two things. First, the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. So for those who are headed for destruction, for those who are not believers in Christ, the the cross of Christ doesn't make any sense. It's completely foolish. Paul quotes this text, he says, as the scriptures say, that's from Isaiah 29, 14. And what we ought to do is stop for a second and like get back in this mindset of what's going on in Isaiah 29, 14. Why is Paul talking about this particular text? And, and where we are in the Old Testament story in Isaiah 29 is over a period of time, God's people had become complacent. God's people had become lazy. God's people had become comfortable. And they knew the things that God had called them to. They were supposed to be caring for the marginalized in their society, Loving and serving and honoring and treating others well. They were supposed to be changed people. But instead, they became complacent and they became comfortable. Instead of doing what they were called to do, they were just fine. They were good people. And God was coming to judge them because of this. Because of the way they were treating those in the culture who were marginalized, God was coming to judge them. They're being disobedient to God. And there was this group of people, the so-called wise and intelligent, who were going to God's people and they're saying, you know what, God's not going to judge anybody. After all, we're, we have most favored nation status with God. God delivered us from Egypt. He placed us to be a light shining on the hill. God's not going to come and judge us. And this is what the Lord had to say. This is, this is Isaiah twenty nine thirteen. These people say they are mine. I want you to let these words sink in for a moment. These people say they're mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man made rules learned by rote. Here's what God, through Isaiah, is telling his people they're all doing all of the right things. When they gather together at the temple, they know all the words to the songs. They probably emotionally feel close to God as they sing them. When the priests read from the first five books of the Bible, the people probably have the addresses memorized of those particular texts. They knew where they were on the scroll. But their hearts were far from God. This is the Lord's response, and this is going to get into what Paul quotes. "'Because of this, because their hearts are far from me, because they honor me with their lips, because they follow man-made rules, because of this, I will once again astound these hypocrites with amazing wonders. The wisdom of the wise will pass away, and the intelligence of the intelligent will disappear.'" See, it's these wise people, these leaders in Israel, who know it all, who have it all memorized, know what they're supposed to do, know what they're supposed to believe. It's these people who are God's just not going to judge us. Why would He? We go to temple. We follow all of the rules, we follow all of the regulations. And ultimately, what was happening here is that God's people were finding satisfaction in rituals and rites. And that's not R-I-G-H-T-S, like my rites. It's R-I-T-E-S. Like as long as I follow the program, as long as I stand when I'm supposed to stand, sit when I'm supposed to sit, mouth the words that I'm supposed to mouth, then then God is going to be happy with me. And what... People like Isaiah are telling the people of Israel is, no, see, God actually wants your heart. Those, those things, those songs and texts and rituals and rites, they're great as long as they don't end on themselves. But there's a greater purpose for those things. Those things are just my expression of what's going on in my heart. And Isaiah and other prophets are continuing to say this. And God's response is, well, those prophets don't know what they're talking about. Those supposed wise people, they don't know what they're talking about. And if we were to read through the rest of the Old Testament, we would see that, in fact, it wasn't the wise people who were right, but it was, in fact, God. And God has them all march off into Babylon So if we fast forward to Corinth, which is what we're talking about, we see that the church is surrounded by people who are filled with wisdom. Eloquence in speech and wisdom in knowledge are the way of the world. One of my favorite texts in the Bible is found um, in Acts chapter 17. Paul's in Athens. Athens. And Luke describes Athens this way. It should be explained that all the Athenians as well as the foreigners in Athens seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. Like that's social media, right? Everyone is just talking about the latest ideas and putting forth thoughts and questions and concerns. Well, I think this and I think this and I think this and I think this. And And Athens was... Athens was Twitter. I think it's now called X. I don't know anyone who calls it that. But it's called X now. Uh, Athens is X on crack. All the people do is talk about the latest ideas. And what Paul is talking about here in this 1 Corinthians text, he says this. Since God in his wisdom saw through it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, what he means is this. Those people could sit around and talk about things all day long. They could talk about situations and circumstances, and the one thing they'll never do is know who God is through all of that conversation. They might be really smart about lots of things, but this will never Help them understand who God is. And in Athens, what this led to was a city filled with idols. Luke actually talks about Paul's experiences. When Paul originally lands in Athens, he spends a few days basically just walking around and looking at all the idols. And then he gets invited to this place called the Areopagus where he gets to speak. And that's like, that's like central. If you want to have a conversation with anyone, you're going to go to the Areopagus because that's where all of the really smart and really intelligent people go. And what's interesting about this city filled with idols and all of these people who sit around and talk about all these things, they have to continually create new idols because they have yet to meet God. So I'm going to add to our idols. I'm going to add to our idols. I'm going to add to our idols. And ultimately, the people realize that, well, maybe there's a God we don't know about. I know what we'll do. We'll create an idol, and we'll put a sign above it that says, to an unknown God. Right? We want to cover all our bases. So there's even an idol to an unknown God. So all of these people who know everything about everything know nothing about God. And it is into that space, both in Athens and in Corinth, that that God sends preachers, foolish preachers like Paul, with a foolish message that saved the people who believed in it. Well, why were they foolish? Why were, these, why were these people foolish? He says, to the Jews the message was foolish because they wanted signs from heaven. Which is perfect if you remember Jewish history. As you read through the Old Testament, we see nothing but signs and wonders. We see the Red Sea being parted. We hear about the bush on fire, but not being consumed. We sang about it in one of the songs. We see the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. Signs and wonders, signs and wonders, signs and wonders. So the Jews, they want to see signs and wonders. But here's the reality about all of those signs and wonders. At the end of the day, despite those signs and wonders... God's people still found themselves where? Being marched off to Babylon. Why? Because they never gave God their hearts. Because they never sacrificed of themselves anything beyond what they were supposed to. They never gave what they were called to give, which was themselves. So signs and wonders are great. If it's actually going to lead to life change. But in the, at least the way the Old Testament explains it, that's not what happened, which ought to give us pause because there are so many times where I've talked to so many Christians who are like, well, if God would just give me a sign, if God would just do this, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you'd be the front of the line going to Babylon. Right? Right? Because we want signs, we want wonders. What God wants is our heart. And then to the Greeks, the message was foolish because they sought wisdom above any other thing. And salvation through a man on the cross was probably the most ridiculous thing they could ever imagine in their entire lives. They couldn't even fathom how man dying on a cross made any sense. It was nothing but shame and embarrassment. And I know our, our nice images of the cross, when Jesus is portrayed on it, he's, he's wearing a little loincloth. But the reality of it is there was no loincloth. People who were hung on a cross were, were, were open For all to see. It was an incredible amount of shame and embarrassment and scorn. So for those Greeks who look at that, who look at that icon, that's the most foolish thing in the entire world. See, the Jews were offended by the preaching of the gospel because the idea of a crucified Messiah... Didn't meet their expectations. It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't grand enough. And the Greeks didn't because it didn't make any sense. But that's not all the cross was. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But it was also for those who are being saved, the very power of God. Paul writes this, but to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the very power of God and the wisdom of God. He says it's wiser than the wisest of human plans, because in this wisdom we are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. See, every other world religion at its root has one thing in common, and that's a works salvation tell me what I have to do, tell me how often I have to do it so that I can be saved. Every other world religion is a matter of works. And the problem with that is, as long as my good works outweigh my bad works, well, who determines what are good works and bad works? After all, aren't there people who are going to be better than me on that scale? There are certainly going to be people worse than me on that scale, which if I'm honest, if I'm using a works-based theology to save me, like isn't pretty much everybody worse than you? That's, That's how that takes place. So I attain salvation through my works. I attain salvation by being better than all of you people. And you attain your salvation by being better than all of us people. And you better work hard. Because in this mindset like God is measuring out every single thing you do. Every single thing, good and bad, is going on that scale 24/7, 24/7, 24/7 and when you die if that scale's not balanced and your good works don't outweigh the bad, you are done. See the best the Greeks could come up with in this concept is filling their cities with idols. And again, like there's one out there that we're missing, so we're just going gonna to worship harder than anybody else. We're going to worship more faithfully than anyone else. Even to the God that we don't know his name, so we're going to create one. And the best that the Jews could come up with were man-made rules that they had memorized. Going to Temple sacrificing their animals. And yes, God told them to do those things. But again, those things happened out of an overflow of what was going on in their hearts. They were meant to orient their hearts. And Paul also writes this, God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. You know, mankind can do lots of really great things. Like regardless of how you feel about Elon Musk. Um, a spaceship that blasts into space and returns to the same literal space it took off from. Like that's pretty neat. Don't you think? Like the first time I saw that, there was all of this conversation about how, how the liftoff had just been played in reverse. Because it didn't really happen because we live in a conspiracy world. Like, that's pretty neat, man. People can do some pretty neat things. But here's reality. There are lots of things that are outside of our control. Like a lot of things that are outside of our control. The influenza virus, for example, is between 80 and 120 nanometers in size. And my guess is... Like, who knows what that means? Jen Dillinger, probably raise your hand. Jen raise her hand. Okay, Michaela knows, okay, two people. Right, most of us, we have no idea what that means. What's a nanometer? I had to look it up. It's .0, like nine zeros, till you get to one. That's what a nanometer is. See, there are lots of things that we don't know anything about, and this thing that's a nanometer, can enter into your system, and if you get influenza A, like that could wreck your life, couldn't it? Like we don't have any control over that. Like, how many nanometers did I just breathe in just then? Like just by breathing, God's wisdom is wisest, wiser. Strong. God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. See, the issue that God deals with through Jesus, through his wisdom, is that his wisdom is stronger because it deals with our actual problem. God's wisdom deals with our sin. And what our world typically does, and again, going back to these religions of the world, what our world typically does is is tries to manage the behavior We want to manage the fruit of it. Well, if we were just smarter, this would happen. If we just loved one another, that would happen. See, it's managing the fruit. And in Christ, what takes place is our sin is addressed. See, that's the real problem. We're going to talk next week about... 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5. We're going to talk about what the gospel is. The thing that needs to be fixed is our sin. And God does it in a way that doesn't make any sense. And this this is not only good news for those who have been saved through this foolishness. But this is really good news for us, for those of us who are proclaiming this foolishness. Let's read verses 26 through 31. Dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by this world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. When I was growing up, I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s before streaming took place. And I remember we would, we would like watch TV together as a family. It was a really strange concept. Um, my dad always let me watch all these old World War II movies. And one of my favorite ones um, was The Dirty Dozen. Um, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, the dir- well, World War II was this thing that took place from 1940 <laughs> to 1945. But anyway, the Dirty Dozen is about this is about this uh, group of of people who are going to attack this like German facility behind enemy lines. And the raid is supposed to fail, so Lee Marvin, it was always Lee Marvin, if you remember um, World War II movies. Lee Marvin is tasked with going into this military prison and finding these 12 guys who have been convicted of all of these crimes and sending them behind uh, enemy lines to attack this place, because if they all died, who cared? Like that's the story of the Dirty Dozen. And I love that um, story so much because I think, as Christians, I think we're the dirty dozen. And it's not that God doesn't care if we die because he does. But I think, as Christians, we are the dirty dozen. What Paul is talking about here, he says, few of us were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called us. And my guess is that's your story. Few of us, few of us were wealthy in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God calls us. In fact, like the dirty dozen, every single one of us literally were guilty as hell when God called us. We were guilty when God called us. God didn't clean us up before he saved us. The text tells us that while we were yet sinners, God saved us. In the midst of our guilt, in the midst of our shameful and embarrassing behavior, God saved us. We didn't clean ourselves up first. God cleaned us up afterwards. And that's why this is really good news for us. What this text is talking about, what this means, is each and every one of us, we all have a chance. We all have a chance to participate in the work that God is accomplishing. Does anyone here feel unintelligent? No, no, you're all a bunch of liars. We know that. (laughs) See, God's foolish plan, this is good news. God's foolish plan has the unintelligent shaming those who think they are wise. This is really good news to all of us C and D students. I'll ask that question. Who is a C and D student Man, I think about that. Like God chose, God chose me, a C and D student at best in high school, who barely passed high school, who failed out of Bible college the first time. Yep, Cody. <laughs> <sighs> like, he chose this to be a proclaimer of the gospel. That's a pretty foolish plan. God, dude, that's a foolish plan. That's foolhardy is what that is. And for those of us who, who feel unintelligent and are unintelligent, God has a plan for you to shame the wise. Does anyone feel powerless and weak? The good news is God's foolish plan has the powerless in Corinth, and those who have no authority in our world shame the powerful. Have you ever just and this isn't arrogance. I want to be careful, I don't want to paint this as arrogance. Have you ever been just like watching the news and someone who comes on who is is like very powerful in the world and says something that literally makes no sense every day. And I don't care what channel you're watching. Okay? Seriously. Like, it doesn't even make any sense. God uses people who feel powerless and weak to shame the powerful. Does anyone feel forgotten about by the world? Feel despised by the world? Well, the good news is this. The cross, which was despised by the world as a device of death and shame, brings to nothing what the world considers important. See, when we cling to the cross, and specifically when we cling to the person who was on the cross, who has since been resurrected and ascended into heaven, when we cling to that person as our hope, when we cling to that person as our joy, when we cling to that person as our meaning in life, what we do is we actually demonstrate how unimportant the things of the world truly are. Because each and every one of those things are fleeting and will pass away. All of it. Someone else is going to spend your money. And they're probably not going to spend your money in the way that you wish they would. My guess is within two generations, your money's going to be gone. Squandered, wasted. So as Christians, we have to pick and choose what we're going to cling to. We have to choose what we're going to hold on to. We can boast in none of the things that we have apart from Christ, because apart from him, those things are nothing. They're empty They're meaningless. They're purposeless. See, we're in Christ because and only because of God's wisdom. So this text is telling us. Christ is the ultimate wisdom of God revealed, and we are right with God only through him. Christ makes us holy. Christ frees us from our sin. See, worldly wisdom and religiosity says about, says this, Look at me, I clean myself up. Look at me, I'm a self-made woman. Look at my degrees. Look at how the people around me defer to my presence when I walk into the room. But see, the Christian knows that the only reason that he or she has anything is because of the work of Christ. That's what gives us meaning. That's what gives us purpose. And that's power. That's wisdom. The Christian gives worship, honor, and praise to Christ alone because it is in Christ alone that we have the things that we have. If it weren't for Christ, we wouldn't have these things. Like, I was a and d student in high school, and I failed out of Bible college round one. Like, I don't know where I was heading, It's in Christ that we have the things that we have and we are the people that we are. And this all requires something of us. This requires that we set aside our wisdom and our ways and accept the foolishness of the person who died on something that looked like that for our sins. That is the most foolish thing in the entire world. But it's also reality. This requires humility on our part to exchange what we think is real, wealth and wisdom and position, to exchange those things for what Christ says is real which looks nothing like those three things. We are only who we are in Christ because of the work of Christ. And as you think about your own relationship with, with the foolishness of the cross and, and the wisdom of the world, and, and you think about how you feel the need to compete in your Christian walk, what I want to tell you is just just be a fool. Be expected to be made fun of as a fool for believing all of this. Be comforted in the fact that you are a fool. Be comforted in the fact that the only person that you have to lean on, trust, and blame for who you are now, your identity in Christ, is Christ himself. This is something we can all take comfort in. And my hope and my prayer for you today is that you would find comfort in that. You would trust that God knows what he's doing even with you. Let's pray. Father, again, we are thankful for the opportunity to engage your word. I pray for those of us who who feel so out of control. Who feel so helpless and weak in the face of, of a culture and society that, that claims to have everything together. That we would see through that. We would see it for the lie that it is. That we would see how you have made foolish things wise. You have brought dead things to life. And help us to be satisfied in your wisdom. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.